Hello, and welcome to Makers.dev episode 46. These numbers just keep going up. It's amazing. Chris, how are you doing? I am doing pretty well. The weather here is really nice, actually. Uh, not crazy cold yet, so yeah, it's good. The perfect fall weather. This is one of my favorite times of year. It's it's not bitterly cold, and it's not swelteringly hot. It's If it could just stay right like this, then I guess I'd be living in California. <laughs> yeah. What did you get up to this last week? Um, I had grand plans to do some uh, Acorn chat stuff and some other things. Uh, I did I mostly recall. my yeah, I did mostly my master's lab uh, because it, it was supposed to be one of the easier ones, and I guess it is, but it still is complicated. <laughs> um, and so yeah, I did a lot of that, and I did other stuff too, like we spent some time to take fall pictures and stuff like that. Um, but a lot of a lot of it was the lab. Cool. Would you like to talk about the lab? I've, I feel like I'm living vicariously through you, like getting, <laughs> sure. a, getting a master's. <laughs> yeah. So there were two of them, actually. The first was a deep learning lab. So that was part of it. So the deep deep learning labs have been really easy for me. And this one was easy, too, except I I was getting like a 92 out of 100. And like because it's auto graded, I can do it as many times as I want. And um, and so I spent probably 10 or like maybe 20 hours because just to get the last, you know, eight points. Um, uh, it turns out, I mean, it, I was doing something wrong, so I did learn something. I mean, I already knew this, but if you add, okay, so in deep learning, you have activation layers, and if you mm-hmm. have like a nonlinear activation just before your final activation, um, mm-hmm. then your performance is going to tank. And I accidentally, because we were doing like blocks, I accidentally included a block with a nonlinear activation just before my softmax, just before my last layer, and so uh, yeah, that's why my performance was not doing nearly as well as it should have. So uh, yeah, I spent. 10 or 15 hours on that that I wasn't expecting. Um, and then the other one is for parallel systems. Uh, this is like the third paradigm we're doing. The first one was C++ pthreads. The second was CUDA, so on GPU programming. And then this one is using Go. Um, and Go, it has a very interesting way to do parallel uh, work. It You spawn things called Go routines, and they are not really threads. It's lighter weight than a thread. It's more like a fiber. Um, and so you could have many of them running on a single thread. Um, and so you can launch like a million of them, and your runtime will just take care of how that breaks up into threads and so we're using we're using those for this lab how interesting several follow-up questions what is nonlinear activation oh yeah so okay in deep learning so it's just a bunch of matrix multiplications and additions right mm-hmm. but if you just did that then you could only learn linear linear regression basically so you could draw lines through your data right mm-hmm. to get like actual good groupings you have to have something that's nonlinear. so you can think about these like if functions so instead of um it's hard to draw without graphs, but basically you have, uh, instead of just functions that you multiply that are lines, you have mm-hmm. functions with um, either bends in them or curves. So like tan H is one, um, I- anything that is not just a line you could use as a nonlinear activation. And that's what makes it more than just a single linear regression. I've seen visualizations of this. I think of uh, it's machine learning trying to uh, cluster dots together. There's red and blue dots and Yep, it, it's trying to figure out the shape that it can differentiate between red and blue dots. And if it's linear, it's just trying to draw a line through it, and sometimes that works well. But if it's something like a cluster of red dots right in the middle and then a bunch of blue dots on the outside, the shape that you need to be able to uh, correctly identify the red versus blue dots is a circle right around the middle. So if you only have linear activation, you can't really draw a line that separates the red and blue dots if it's if it's going right through the middle. Is that right so far? Yep. Cool. Okay, but I think you're working now in n dimensions. You're this is not like yes. a 2D graph. This okay. Uh, yep. So if you you said if you have a nonlinear layer right before your output layer that that's bad. Can can you explain why that's bad? Yeah. So the output layer was using uh, categorical cross entropy, which is just a fancy way for 
saying that it's going to pick between one of n different classes. So we're trying to yeah. separate images into five different buckets. Okay. And that already includes a nonlinear activation. And so that expects your your data to be nicely distributed before it gets there. So if you apply one of these nonlinearities just before that, then it'll, it, that last layer is going to have a much harder time learning. So it'll learn something, but it just won't do very well at all. And so I just got rid of that. It's basically like doing, it's trying to do two two nonlinear activations in a row that aren't communicating with each other. Oh, I see. And so they screw each other up. Okay. You were, you were plugging into something else that also is doing nonlinear activation. Yeah. And so by you doing nonlinear activation directly before that, which is the input to this next nonlinear activation function, that's just too much complexity to, to deal with at once. Uh, yeah. Yeah. In this particular case, like the, it changed the distribution of the data going in into a way that it, it's not expecting. And Got so it, it like ch cut off a whole chunk of the availability of the network. Okay. I, I I need just a second to geek out of like you're you're studying how to create minds and you're like <laughs> you're, you're figuring out this like what a, what an interesting problem that if you zoom out this is a problem you would get in designing a brain that like that's those are the weeds that you're in this is the minutia this is like the intuitive sense that you're getting now that the this work that you're putting in yeah, you spent whatever a, a couple of hours extra on this lab, but you you gain from that this newfound sense of like, oh, when I'm making a brain, you, I need to make sure like not to cluster the neurons in this way. Amazing! Like, <laughs> this is, we're we're living in a sci-fi novel. Uh oh my gosh, that's so cool. Uh, I I, I had some questions about uh, Go also. I, I've been really interested in Go, but I'm uh, I I don't feel like I've ever encountered a problem that Go would be a good language to solve. Uh, and it might just be that I'm not encountering any of these massively parallel uh, problems, but could I'd, I'd love sort of like a sales pitch for Go of why it would be important to have fibers instead of threads. What is there a is there a I I I, I kind of want like a sales pitch of how this would be useful to me as a tool and what sorts of problems I could do if I had access to fibers instead of threads. Sure. Yeah. So there's two kind of ways to think about it. One is how it was designed. So it was designed by Google and designed specifically to like, like Google has, a, you know, a million servers, right? And each of those servers have 16 cores or 32 cores or whatever. And so writing C++ to go across a million servers and 32 cores sounds awful. <laughs> and so they designed Go to have these primitives that are like, instead of like a whole huge chunk of things to manage your threads, you just say like Go and then a function. And then it's just like goes off and does its thing. Um, so it has primitives in it that make it super parallelizable across not just different cores, but different machines as well. Hmm. Um, so that's when you would use it. It, it building SASs like we do, uh, you almost certainly don't need it at all. It's more like, so they call it systems programming. It's like, you know, like network level, like shuttling data around and doing stuff with it across many machines. That's why you would okay. do it. Okay. Okay. It, it sounds like it was a language that makes the, the, the DevOps of running that sort of problem of of deploying it much easier that they've they've thought through not just how is this easy to write the code they've thought through well when you're running this and you have it massively scaled and you need to run the solution in parallel across a ton of machines uh that they, they've designed the language to make that next step easier is that right yep exactly um they've also done things with the language too since they were building it from the ground up they got to do things like the core language is super small and so you can like read through the whole paper of it in like you know an afternoon um and also it it like a compile like they were really focused on super fast compile times because uh compile times is where programmers uh, time goes to die you know so uh like super fast compile times good linting stuff like that so cool. um yeah 
cool. Okay, sounds like that's not something that I need to learn right now, but it's it's good to know that that exists if I'm doing something massively in parallel, like uh, more machine learning stuff. Um, I, I was reminded of uh, serverless computing, of uh, particularly working with Firebase, of like, it's sort of a difficult sales pitch when someone's just learning web programming to be like, no, Firebase is really important, and yes, there's this extra minutiae you need to do if you need to be thinking about stuff in this new serverless way. Because it seems so much easier if you're just developing on your machine to make one monolith or a, a PHP script or like a, a Rails app or something. And so the sales pitch for serverless is like, it really makes the next step easier. Yes, you have to be making some sacrifices in how you're developing it, but if you can find to these constraints, now deploying it is just trivially simple and scaling it is trivially simple. And those are really hard problems if you're developing apps in that traditional way. Um, that's That's the sort of feeling I'm getting from how you're describing how Go is designed. Yep, that's exactly right. Yep. And sense. then you asked about fibers versus threads. It's not exactly fibers. Go routines aren't, but they're basically think of like a thread can do one thing at a time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if you and if you spawn a million of them on your machine, you'll crash your machine. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Go is specifically designed to let you spawn like a million Go threads, and it will figure out how to map those onto your your CPU cores so that you don't crash your machine. So oh, you can just interesting. Spawn them. Yeah, you just spawn them however you want, and your machine will figure it out. Okay, it it has an extra layer of thread management that yep are okay. Are the are the number of fibers I can spawn unlimited? Is that uh there? So let's see. They showed us a graph. He tried to crash it. The professor did. I think he got to ten million maybe on his machine or something like that. So wow. it's, it it okay. is limited, but you can do a lot of them. <laughs> yeah. Cool. I remember uh, when I took operating systems in my undergrad class, uh, we learned about fork bombing, and he yeah. was like, "If you run this program, uh, I think it was using pthreads in C plus uh, you'll crash your machine. <laughs> Watch, <laughs> you got to crash your machines." Uh, so it sounds like it sounds like doing that in Go would be really hard. Yeah, yeah, it's specifically designed not to <laughs> let you do that. Cool. Yeah. Neat. That's fun. Uh, I, I have a follow-up from last week that I'd love to talk with you about. Uh, I deleted YouTube on my phone live on the call. I think you also deleted Twitter live on your call. Yep. Uh, I have a lot of thoughts about how that went. How did it go for you? Sure. So, yeah, I deleted Twitter. And then after the call, I actually I said, why not clean up the rest of my home screen? So I cleaned up like all the things that except for uh, there's like eight apps now on my home screen like uh, weather weather and notes and stuff like that uh, um and then i kept some of the rest in folders and stuff but yeah so i went super minimal uh so it feels good uh i noticed so i it, what all it did was it really focused me like when i was reaching f- to my phone for a distraction because i mm-hmm. went to go hit the twitter icon and it wasn't there anymore yeah, yeah. so it's like more cognizant of that i think i'm gonna get used to it though what i ended up doing instead a lot of times is going to safari and opening hacker news yeah <laughs> so i like yeah. replace one with another um uh but that's all right and i still have access to twitter on my computer you know it's just such so just more focused uh you know interaction with it yeah, yeah. So, so so it went it went pretty well i would say but not life-changing yeah almost exactly the same for me with youtube i First of all, I, w- I was sort of horrified. Like every moment that I caught myself trying to open YouTube, I was like, "Whoa, where did that come from? <laughs> who, who was who was in charge just then?" Uh, and I followed up right after the call. I, I wrote that little program that I talked about of uh, redirecting me if I'm if I go to YouTube if I just type in by uh, muscle memory YouTube.com that it redirects me to localhost three thousand. Um, and I coded it so it pops up a, a random encouraging message of like hey it seems like you're a little distracted right now why not go for a walk or why not like do some push-ups or uh work on a fun project um and it, it still kept happening over and over and i think my the the primitive part of my brain that just craves this dopamine 
learned a little bit that that's not a way to get dopamine anymore. So I replaced it with Hacker News and I replaced it with Inger. And Inger is just like even worse. It's just like these little pictures and they're funny. And then you get to a meme dump and, ooh, this is great. And there's a little dopamine hit one after another. So the obvious thing to do is to apply the same tactic that I did to YouTube to Hacker News and Imgur. Uh, I've already gone so long without being on Hacker News. I feel like I don't need to do that. Uh, and Imgur just feels like complete trash uh, that I, I absolutely don't need to do that. I found a few funny pictures that I sent to friends and they were like, oh, this, this is related to this thing that we were talking about. Uh, but like, I don't need that in my life. Here's the thing I'm currently struggling with. I would like a healthy, like this process is a process I know I'm going to go through. I know I'm going to have a hundred moments this next week where my brain has whatever this impulse is that then causes me to go to youtube.com. And then I'm going to be like, oh, I can't go to YouTube. I want to go to Imgur. And if I can regain control of myself, that won't happen. But like, this is a thing I want to prepare for. I want to come up with things that I can do in that mental state that are healthier and easier to get out of and more redirecting towards doing more work that I'd like to be doing in the long term. Because uh, otherwise, this feels like it could turn into an endless game of whack-a-mole of like, okay, well, I've I've blocked off Imgur and Hacker News and YouTube, so now I go to TikTok and, oh, okay, let's block TikTok. Like, I, I want to I try to figure out what the deeper thing is that my brain is craving in those moments and make that more available. Uh, you know, I... I'm, I'm reminded of the analogy of like, if you're going on a diet, uh, it's yes, it is very helpful to like get rid of all the snacks and candy in the house, but you also need to have healthy vegetable snacks ready and available. Uh, this is a topic I, I think we've talked about before, uh, but how, how are you framing that? Are you, are you happy with the amount that you were on Hacker News and it's not a problem and you feel like you're getting enough out of that or do you, do you feel like that process could be improved? And I'd love suggestions on, I'm not even quite sure what I'm asking, but like yeah. this doesn't, this process doesn't feel good yet. I, I would love if in those moments I was redirected towards something else that still scratched the itch in a similar but healthier way. Yeah, so I have several thoughts. One is, um, well, so first, yeah, I, pretty happy with my phone usage this week i found myself scrolling less so it's harder like on hacker news you see everything and then it doesn't really change that much throughout the day so um and then i also found so on my phone i found myself looking at hacker news like when i was waiting so a couple times i was in lines and i was just looking at it so that i think is fine to do that um and then another couple of times i was with my kids and i went for my phone to look at twitter and i was like oh i should be with my kids <laughs> you know this is not twitter time and so it, it actually made me more cognizant of that so that was good um i was going to bring up a food analogy too you said you should have healthy snacks around there's also something to be said for like if you're really craving chocolate then you might have like some hummus and that doesn't work so like some eggs and that doesn't work and so you might have all these healthy things and then eventually just eat the chocolate anyway <laughs> and so you've like wasted a bunch of calories and then ate the chocolate anyway so i'm thinking of something like every time you find yourself going to youtube maybe you could like add five minutes of youtube budget to the end of the day or something and that's like all the youtube budget you need and then oh. at the end of the day you watch your you know 30 minutes or hour or whatever of youtube yeah, that you budgeted yeah. That's interesting. Um, so something like that. So you still get the chocolate, but it just comes at the end of the day. Yeah, yeah. Um, another thing is like, what would I replace like YouTube with? Like, I know it's a little bit of a game of whack-a-mole, but what if like I redirected YouTube.com to go to like pictures of my kids or something? Like, <laughs> I would still get a dopamine hit, uh, but I would look at them for less time probably. Um, 
just because it's not the endless you know suck of, of youtube yeah so maybe replacing them with something that gives you a similar dopamine hit but is less less addictive um those are some thoughts that last one resonates with me the strongest because I'm, I'm reminded of uh there have been several courses that i found on youtube of things from stanford and like a crash course uh has fantastic courses on history and science and math and things that maybe if i oh how about this what if i made my own version of youtube.com filled with the videos that i actually want to watch yeah so, i think like it's I still dopamine this... hit but it's go ahead I think you've had this exact thought before also. Man, I'm remembering <laughs> this now. Yeah. I think yeah. I think I think it was uh to redirect it to the the watch later list. Um Yeah, man, it's a it's circumambulation. It's like every I spiral around and you know, every time I'm getting closer to something, but uh yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Okay. That feels like and a then good. The other thing that would be really easy, which I think we talked about last time too, is make a Chrome extension that just hides the what to watch next like side because yeah, that's yeah. where i get into youtube things that's like i see three videos so i open three more tabs you know of what to watch yeah. next i hid that the last time we were talking about this oh. and that has been great uh it still automatically plays a video up next which got me once so i, oh. I would like to disable that uh let me yeah you can disable, disable you can disable autoplay it's a setting cool i will change that setting um okay cool and then Thank you for reminding me of the idea that I had already had. Uh, of, uh, I'd, I'd like to put together, you know, nine videos that are on deeper contexts that uh, I'm, I'm not going to get sucked into. I just want to watch the next one, like, but they're still going to provide that dopamine hit. Because part of this process I actually like of, like, if I'm stuck in something, it does feel productive to go off and do something else and just exercise my brain in a different way and then when i come back to the main thing i'm doing it, it I'm, I'm looking at it with fresh eyes and uh i've been exposed to these new ideas and so i think i i think the thing i'm yearning for is just a healthier process because i get too sucked into youtube if i just let it go unfettered and then you know two hours have gone by and what have i done in the last two hours i've watched a hundred people fighting over a mountain of a million dollars in cash and <laughs> <laughs> I, I have made no better by watching this so uh, I'm getting as much as I can out of it of like seeing the meta analysis of oh this is interesting that this is the sort of thing that can get 50 million views on YouTube and uh, but I'm, I'm not I'm not happy retrospectively with how I've spent that time um, so yeah okay I think redirecting that towards healthier videos pre-selecting those of okay if you want to scratch this itch scratch it by relearning chemistry uh, and that's a that's an okay thing to do. And yeah. oh, you don't want to do that right now. Here's a menu of the things that previous versions of you have selected would be a, a more productive way to spend your time. Yeah. Okay, cool. And that I, I would much rather be doing that than slipping into Inger or Hacker News or uh, TikTok. So that feels good. Cool. Yeah. The other thing which I mentioned before, but is worth repeating for YouTube specifically, um, there's two tactics I use to be really more careful about this. One is for anything I know I want to watch, but will impact my like future what to watch videos negatively. So like uh, 50 people fighting over a million dollars, watch it in, in incognito mode. So that yeah. it won't get on your history. 
But if you do watch something that gets on your history, you, you can open in the open the hammer menu, go to history, and then be really thorough about deleting anything that's like remotely uh, dopamine driven. You yeah. know, it's so like, yeah, uh, I keep that, you know, so that my suggestions are far more educational or creative. I like to watch a lot of creative stuff like woodworking videos and like people doing projects. Like I find that pretty energizing. And so most of my history I keep is that in any of the, the junk brain food I, I watch on incognito or delete it from my history. Since you recommended that to me on the show a couple of weeks ago, I have done that several times now, uh, especially after, you know, when traveling, I'm just frazzled and, and I allow myself to just, okay, whatever you need to, to get through the day, you need some YouTube, fine, watch whatever you want. Uh, and then after the fact, going through and editing, like, it feels so cathartic and it, it, it feels sort of deeply philosophical of like, <laughs> if I could go back in my life and do that, if I, if I could go back and edit, like, did I actually want to eat this food? No, let's let's delete these foods from my gut. Uh, so that's not like feeding into the, the person who I am in the future. Um, it, it feels like such a healthy process. And then, man, it's just, it's so interesting seeing the, the spirals that I go down of like, wow, I watched 10 Family Guy clips in a row. <laughs> this is just, oh, where was I going with this? Okay, here's this one video that, okay, that was okay to watch. Um, it's It feels like, it feels like a, a process of like, editing myself that I, I wish I could apply to more context. I wish I could go back through the day and, and like look at all the thoughts that I had thought during the day and, and be able to edit like, Ooh, this, this thought is uh, self damaging. Let's remove that and uh, just strengthen the pathways of the, the few uh, healthy thoughts that I uh, that went through, through my mind. Uh, yeah. yeah I, I love that process and I wish I could do more of it. Yeah. If Neuralink works or something like that, then maybe someday. Oh my gosh! Yes, that's exactly what's going to happen. Delete oh them. yes. <laughs> oh, that's so dystopian. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm here for it. <laughs> uh, and I don't, I don't see how things could be any different. Uh, I think the game with it is like you can't stop technological progress. It's just about how do you, how do you navigate uh, getting the healthiest things from it and avoiding the traps from it. Um, cool. Um, I will say I had a huge positive benefit from going through this process. Something about not preventing myself in this way from spiraling into this particular spiral spiral freed up a lot of extra energy of like, I, I was able to push forward all these projects that I hadn't gotten to that had just been sitting on my to-do list for months of like listing my car on a site where uh, people can uh, rent it from me and doing a bunch of meal prep and uh, pushing out new features of midnight that I had been thinking about forever. Spent just 15 minutes on midnight and, and did these features that meaningfully pushed the project forward. It felt really good and had a moment working on a project with a friend that I'd, I'd love to talk to you about of feeling this transcendent feeling that I hadn't felt before. Uh, my friend Trig, who's a professional magician who I've talked about before on the show, bought this robot arm and he just wanted to ask me some questions about it, of what was possible in it and how I would architect a system that he's thinking about doing for it for a show. And about 45 minutes into the call, I had the thought, oh, the way that this is structured, it's it's Arduino and it's running on Raspberry Pi and it, it needs to be controlled remotely. And I understand every part of this. And so I asked him, can I just go into your computer and try out a few things? <laughs> and two hours later, I had devised this just brilliant system that worked perfectly and, and went into uh, two days later was actually included in his show. And that, that wasn't a thing he thought he'd be able to do for the next several months. But the the... The point that really stuck out to me was just the, the feeling I got working on this project. I felt so in flow, and that's a feeling that I want to spend more of my life in. It was really hard, and it was 
challenging and it required all these different parts of me and remembering how serial connections work over USB and trying to think of creative ways that I could go and alter the code on this thing remotely and pushing that, combining that with coming up with this really clever network flow of how to get commands from the internet through a web interface all the way through to the serial connection, all the way through to moving these servo motors on this robot. It felt so good. It, it reminded me of what it's like to work on a project like that that I just feel so excited by. And that one, the the project is done and uh, I, I can't spend any more time doing anything meaningful on that. But I, I, I would love to spend more time in that state. I, I would love to find more problems like that. And uh, I'd love to better understand like what was it about that project that sparked that energy in me. Uh, do you have any thoughts on that? If, I, I think this is something similar that you feel there. There are projects like this that you also feel that same spark. Uh, how, how do I get more of that? What do I do? <laughs> yeah. So yeah, being in flow is like a, there, there are several books written about the topic. Um, so if you haven't read some of those, those are great. Yeah. It's one of my favorite feelings in programming too. Um, I call it like thinking in the language. That's one of the things like, like Ruby is the first language where, out of school where I really like felt like a think and then just like, I didn't have to think about syntax at all. I just, yeah. my idea just came out straight onto the you know screen um and that's happened with javascript now too and so yeah whenever i'm like whenever you can let all the stuff like syntax and and all of the minutiae of things just just settle down and you like you already understand them like viscerally mm -hmm. and then just do the thing you want to do um i think that's when you that's when i really get into flow and uh yeah it's a super exciting feeling um it's hard to track down sometimes because you need like you, you said you spent two hours, right? You need an extended period of time where you're focused and you can get into it. And you also have to have all the basics taken care of for you. Like, so you don't have to think about those. Um, but once you do that, yeah, it's a really great feeling. I had also put myself in this frame of mind where my brain didn't feel itchy. I had, I had not fallen into the well of YouTube and that felt really good. I haven't read flow. Have you read flow? I think is the, the book you were referencing about the, yeah. The yeah. And then there's a couple others. So I, I read it. Like I read a lot of, uh, business D type books, which is like, I read all of the, uh, chapter titles yeah, and yeah. then any that seem that in, any that seem interesting, I go and skim. And then any that seem more interesting, I go and read. Um, I, yeah. So I, I did that to read like one year, I read a hundred or 200 books or something like that way. Um, it's a neat experience. If you have never done it, you can read a book in like, you know, 30 minutes. Um, so that's how I read that one. I think <laughs> that seems effective. That seems like the sort of book that's summarized in its title. Yeah. Yeah. This, <laughs> a lot of these businessy books feel like resumes for speaking engagements that, okay, you do have one core useful, interesting idea, but it really could have been a blog post that you ballooned into a 300 page book because it's gotta be 300 pages or people aren't going to hire you for speaking gigs. Um, yeah. Okay, cool. I will read it in a similar way. Thank you. Um, cool. I have one more question I'd like to ask you involving Twitter. Uh, my, my ego was bruised a little <laughs> bit and, uh, I'm Twitter, Twitter can to... do that. <laughs> <laughs> I had this stroke of inspiration, uh, one day last week of this beautiful analogy for how to understand how big a billion is. Cause that's something I have a lot of trouble with in the context of time or in money or in like computer bits a billion is just a really big number and i had the idea oh what if there was what if what if there was an extended analogy that equated like a dollar with a bit and with a year and then i could have that analogy and 
compare things to, against each other. So, and that would give me a much, it, it, it's three contexts where it's still kind of difficult to understand the scale of it. But maybe if I'm relating those things against each other, it'd be much easier to do. And that turned into this four hour thing of uh, making graphics of, oh, okay, a dollar of gold is about the size of a grain of sand. And then a thousand dollars of gold is about the size of a coin and a million dollars of gold is about the size of a brick and a billion dollars of gold is about the size of a one by one by one meter cube. Oh, this is cool. Cause now I can just visualize things in the, in the scale of this one unit of how much gold is the thing. So, you know, uh, Elon Musk has this many golden cubes and, uh, the, the, the Parthenon in Rome is, was built, uh, what, like four gold coins ago where every year is just one little grain sized fleck of this thing. Um, this, this unit of magical gold that can buy you years and bits and everything else. And the new iPhone comes with something like uh, 16 gold coins of storage. Uh, and I started getting a, an intuitive sense of it. And I wasn't sure what to turn that into, if that was like a video or a blog post, but I had the thought, ooh, this would be a perfect Twitter thread because each of these ideas and analogies would be a perfect little tweet. So I put this together, put a bunch of work into it, uh, made this tweet thread of like 20 different tweets and published it sort of half expecting like, ah, this might become viral. <laughs> I might become internet famous for this. And oh gosh, what would I do if I just had so much fame that I couldn't deal with it on Twitter? <laughs> Known for this one tweet storm. And I came back to it an hour later and I had zero notifications on Twitter. And I looked like this, surely this is a mistake. <laughs> I looked at the thread and I looked at every tweet in the thread and none of them had any likes. And I was thinking, did was this private? Did I do, did I publish this in a, I haven't published a lot of threads. Did I do something wrong? Maybe no one's seen it. Maybe that's why. And I, I clicked on one of them and it said seen by 200 people. And I was very disheartened, uh, but also sort of academically curious of like, how does Twitter work? I, there, there has <laughs> been some fundamental misunderstanding of my model of uh, how tweets work, uh, because this is something that I thought would be really interesting that I thought people would think was cool. Uh, what, what insights do you have on that? Because <laughs> I don't, I don't feel like the amount of work I put into that or the the interest level of the ideas deserved zero. Like I, I feel like I should have gotten one like. <laughs> uh, most, I, I can't think of the last tweet that I tweeted that that got that level of disengagement. Uh, and you're much more active on Twitter than I am. What, what insights do you have? Is there is there something here that I'm not understanding? Yeah, so I have lots of thoughts. Um, so first of all. You told me about this uh, just before the, this call, and I hadn't seen it. Part of that's because I hadn't been on Twitter as much because I deleted it off my phone. <laughs> but um, like uh, another part of it is, so I have noticed recently and in the past, like Twitter changes the way their algorithms work, and like at certain points, I just feel like Twitter shows my tweets to pe to people who don't uh, react as much to my tweets. Like mm. so, sometimes I can tweet stuff and I for a certain number of impressions, I get a certain number of likes that seems outsized compared to other times. Mm. And it kind of goes in cycles. Um, so it may just be that they showed it to people that just weren't going to react to it. Mm. So that's one thing. The other thing though is, so you said a few things in there. One, uh, so it's kind of your first Twitter thread or your first big one, right? Mm. Um, I had to do, I did, I don't know, 20 or 30 and eventually one of them blew up. Right. And so there's just some level of, of doing many of them before one mm. of them is kind of randomly gets big. The other is, um, you said you don't use Twitter all that much. And so if you, if your followers aren't primed to expect a certain kind of content from you, then mm. especially the first time they see it, they're going to ignore it. That happens like all the time. Mm. Um, so what I would have done if you wanted to replan this was 
start leaking out bits of the idea in just mm. single tweets over a couple of weeks and see which one gets the most engagement, right? And then whatever your first, whatever the most engagement tweet is, make that your first tweet and then make the Twitter thread after that. So people are primed to expect that content from you, even if it's just over a few weeks, you kind of use those single tweets as like recognizing what gets the most engagement um, and then do your tweet thread. Uh, the other thing you said is that it was 20 tweets long. That's pretty long for a tweet thread. Like most are maybe 10. That's pretty good. Or so some are like five to 10 or like 60, like as much as you can do. Like <laughs> some of those go crazy too. Um, uh, let's see what else. Yeah. So that's, that's a lot of my thoughts. I probably had more, but any reactions to those? I like the idea of, well, there's two interesting ideas there. The first is this idea that I also got from, uh, the part-time YouTuber Academy by Ali Abdal of to have a successful YouTube channel, you kind of need to be hitting the same note over and over. You need to prime the audience of like that. They expect the same sort of content from you that they're, they're primed to get that. And that's what you're rewarded for the most on these sorts of channels, which is something really difficult for me because I am all over the place. I have so many different interests and so many different things. And like this, this tweet thread was unlike any other content I've, published uh but it they all share the commonality of like things that i am interested in and so i like the advice of if i had if i had primed my twitter audience with this type of content and got them more used to it so that they this is this is now more of a rhythm of a thing that they're expecting i, I can sort of pivot this ship of oh okay things with gold in them as an analogy i know what the sort of content is I, I know what to expect um sort of like i'm designing this to <laughs> tickle the dopamine receptors of human brains the most that that feels like the problem that i'm optimizing for which kind of feels gross saying it that way because that's exactly the thing <laughs> i'm trying to avoid like that's, that's why i'm getting off youtube in the first place um, that's true gross i guess like i think the way i'm justifying it is that it I feel like I have better content than other stuff on Twitter. I, I would like more of my stuff to be out there in the universe and less of hateful stuff. Uh, I'd, I'd like people to learn a useful analogy for how big a billion is and not, I don't know, whatever the latest drama going on on Twitter is. Uh, it, it feels like a useful thing to be doing. Yeah. So I thought of two other things when you were talking, uh, which was um, you mentioned that it's unlike anything else you did sometimes. So. The reason tweet threads do well is because people can view all the content right there. Uh, usually linking out to like a blog post or something doesn't do very well because people don't like to click off of Twitter, right? Yeah, yeah. But if the content is so different than everything else that you've published, it may have been worth publishing it as a blog post and then just put one nugget that is kind of like the other stuff that you post, just mm -hmm. the, the most interesting nugget as the tweet and then, mm -hmm. you know, have a hook with a link to your blog post. I like that. That's interesting. Because like surely you could pull out something that's at least similar to something else that you've posted before you know, more in line with what your audience likes. Um, I like that. Uh, and then the other thing is, I can't remember where I heard this. I think it was Harry Dry on the Indie Hackers podcast. Um, he talked about why people actually like or re especially retweet Twitter threads. Um, and it's not because they learned something interesting. It's because they want to look impressive to their friends for retweeting it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so this gets even more into the kind of feeling bad about how you're crafting things. But yeah. you want, when people retweet that top, that top you know, tweet, you want them to look smart for having retweeted it. Um, and that will get you more retweets. Interesting. I feel kind of gross about that. I, it is a little gross. Yeah. Yeah. Because the top, 
thinking of the top tweet that I did in this thread, it, it was something along the lines of like, I've, I've really struggled with understanding how big a billion is. And I wonder if, I wonder if the feeling people would get from retweeting that would be like admitting ignorance, but at the same time, maybe I was tweeting that because it's sort of like a humble braggy thing of like, I'm the sort of person who contemplates how big a billion is. <laughs> I'm a, I'm a big old intellectual. Um, huh. Interesting. Right. This so is sort if of, I was, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. If I was going all the way on the clickbaity side, then your first tweet should have been something like, uh, when you finally understand how big a billion is, you won't believe your brain or something i don't know <laughs> yeah. you know like make it about them make it about them understanding it and when you retweet it it's like oh i understand it now do you understand yeah it? yeah yeah um so that's all huh. the way on the what i would say bad clickbaity side so but finding somewhere in the middle yeah this is sort of a philosophical thing i need to i need to get used to of like i don't i don't like that about myself <laughs> that like that i want to advertise to other people that you know i understand what a billion is that i'm i'm, I'm I strive for humility and like trying to be open to new information, but like, yeah, that's, that's the part of humanity that I would need to be pandering to, to get more stuff out there. Huh? Huh? That's a thing I would like to think a lot more about when I, I remember the, the uh, tweet thread that one of the ones that you did that, that blew up was uh, about react hooks in, in a uh, uh, series of tweets. How, how do you frame that in this context? How, when people retweet that, like, what is that, what is that doing for them for retweeting it? Yeah, that's a good question because that, so, so that one blew up. Yeah, it's like learn React in 10 tweets with hooks or something like that. I think yeah. that's what it does. Um, what I was doing there very specifically was like all of the tutorials I had seen for React or hooks were like two hours long or like mm -hmm. lots, of, you know, so I was like, how far can I compress learning React? Like, and make every tweet like super, super informative out of graphics for everyone. Uh, and like, how, how small can I make an encapsulation of learning react? And I got down to 10 tweets. It took me probably a week. Like it was a lot of work actually. Um, and, uh, and I got it in there and after that is kind of luck. So the, I think the real reason it blew up is cause, um, so, um, Dan Abramoff retweeted it. So that he, so he's a creator of redux. He's on the react core team or he was, mm -hmm. um, so that got like loads and loads. Uh, Kenzie Dodds also retweeted it. And so some of it is just lucky. Um, the other thing that was interesting with that one that happened, and I don't know how big of a uh, thing this played was I was at React Boston. Like I, I tweeted that and the next day I was at React Boston and I live tweeted that conference when I was there. Hmm. And I got a lot of retweets from React Boston. And then people looked at my account and then retweeted the other one as well. Mm. And so I kind of, accidentally piled it into a bunch of react content yeah yeah. Um, yeah and then in terms of what people are looking at like a lot of the con a lot of the comments were stuff like i learned more from this tweet thread than i did in my entire boot camp you know stuff like that <laughs> so it's like i think it's just i spent all this time to compress a bunch of information into something so in that case it was way more educational than clickbaity in my opinion mm. yeah I'm, I'm noticing several trends in that of it sounds like that came at a time when you were hitting the same note over and over of yes. react, 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 react. And then we're in a room of people learning react. And here's this thread about this, uh, relevant topic of how to, how to learn react quickly. Interesting. Why psychologically would someone retweet educational content like that? What's, what's the emotion that someone would feel if they had just seen your talk, 
at uh, React Bootcamp and they go to your Twitter feed and they see that you have how to learn React with hooks in 10 tweets, what feeling do they feel that leads them to click the retweet button? Why, why would they do that? Because it doesn't feel like it's, look at me and how smart I am. But maybe yeah. it is. I don't well, know. That one I tried to design, so it was not look at me how smart I am, but this is a great resource that other people should know about. I try to get that feeling. Um, okay, so it's it's they're 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 trying to be valuable in their own spaces. This is something that they know that people who follow them are struggling with, and right. so if they retweet it, they've found something valuable that they think would be valuable to someone else. So if they retweet it, now when someone they follow sees it through them, they'll associate. Oh, this person has valuable things about React. This is a useful person to be following. Does that sound right? Yeah, I think so. Okay. Interesting. Huh. The psychology of viral content is, uh, <laughs> should be a class. <laughs> it is. The, yeah, yeah. That's what the, the next marketing uh, degree program should be about. It's just like probably how to understand why people uh, publish stuff like that. Yeah. Neat. The, the, other, the other thing I'll say about Twitter is, um, I sort of already talked about this, but you said you haven't been doing it very much, and this was your first tweet thread. Yeah. Tweet threads have kind of fallen out of favor a little bit. People recognize them as sort of a growth hack, texting, you know, yeah, like yeah. marketing tactic. So there's, there's sort of some pushback against threads, I think, now. The flip side of that, though, is, uh, so there's a couple, like in machine learning, there is at least one guy who, he does like one of these tweet threads every single day. I don't know how he keeps up with it. But he always gets tons of tweets, and that's because of the audience priming. Like, his audience oh, yeah. is primed. Like, every day, he's going to have some crazy tweet thread. And so that's when they can do really well. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, but his his entire Twitter persona is around is shaped around that, where yeah. he, whereas yours is more, like, about being online with friends, I think. so. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah he's, I, I think I know the guy you're talking about. I think it's, his name is Visa, I want to say. Uh, I don't remember his name, yeah. I know his picture because <laughs> it shows up in, yeah. <laughs> It may be a, another separate person, but the person I'm talking about, uh, or the person I'm thinking about is hitting the same note every single day. It's like interesting things involving crypto and involving the future oh, no. and technology. And, no. Uh, this guy's just AI and machine learning stuff, so it's a different guy. Okay. But same, well, same similar, concept. Similar topic. Um, that's, a, that's a theme I'm pulling from this discussion is uh, the more you can just be hitting the same note, the more you can be delivering the same sort of consistent content that if... If you told me, oh, this person has a new tweet, what what things can you say about this that are true? I could list like 10 things that would probably still, that, that would probably be valid about whatever the next tweet that he did, just because he, he has a very strong brand. He has a, a similar taste. Like when you go to McDonald's, you're going to get the same hamburger every time and they're just hitting that note over and over and over again. And that's that's how they get such a big following. Uh, if, if, if people can go to you and expect a thing that's going to help them to feel a specific feeling, then they'll start craving that feeling and they'll want to go after that more. And that's how you get a bigger following. Okay. Yeah. Hmm. And this is exactly how, so Wes Boss and Steve Sugar are maybe the two of the biggest in our sphere. Anyway, two of the biggest people who I know um, have built their audiences this way. Same thing. Like they constantly push out content or they used to constantly push out content that was almost, you know, the same, but it was really good insights. So yeah. Steve Sugar, he did design, right? It was good design like every you know couple every week or something he's since stopped because it's a lot of work it's a lot of work to do this yeah. um but yeah the thing that drives me crazy in this is like i don't want to hit the same note over and over <laughs> yeah. i feel like i'm i'm i really enjoy that i can 
you know, be reading a book about parenting and be really interested in that and then go over to learning machine learning and then learn about how to build a tiny house. That's when I feel the most alive and in flow, I'm, I'm jumping around stuff and I'm drastically context switching. And so a, a thing that I think I've found difficult is finding a single note that I can feel satisfied just hitting over and over. Um, you, I also thought of uh, Marie Poulin on her Notion stuff. Like she's just hitting that note over and over and over again. Like Notion, Notion, Notion. And uh, doing it in a way that she can bring other parts of herself into it of like meal planning. Here's how you do meal planning in Notion. And like finances. Here's how you track your finances in Notion. And uh, relationships. Here's how like my husband and I have our shared Notion account and how that helps our relationship and uh, business and things like that. And I... I don't yet feel like I've found that one single note pillar that I can keep hitting over and over and, and attaching other stuff to. Yeah, I'm similar. And if you don't, it, it used to be React, but I sort of stopped that uh, one because it's a ton of work. And two, because yeah, I didn't, I didn't always want to, you know, tweet about React. And so yeah, if you don't want to do that, your following is just not going to be as big as people who do. Um, that's yeah. yeah, it's just not. It's disheartening. The way I've tried to solve that is to try to make separate pools of places where I can hit the note over and over. But then what happens event. So like, uh, when I made a, a coding school, I made that its own separate thing and it has its own website and it has its own YouTube channel. But then what happens is like, okay, I've put some stuff in there, but now I'm just going to totally ignore that for a year until I come back around to it. And then when I come back around, okay, I'll, I'll put some more content in there, but then inevitably I'm going to circle back around again and, ignore it for a little longer that's a it's a problem that i feel like i've had a lot it's a that's a general problem in my life yeah yeah if you're not going to focus on it then it, it's kind of a big waste of time to make its own thing and do all its own yeah. stuff uh yeah i just don't know what else to do like it doesn't make sense to be publishing coding tutorial videos on my primary twitter channel because that's not who that audience is i don't think and it doesn't make sense to do that on my primary youtube channel and I don't know. I, f I feel like my email list is the one place where I feel safe just publishing whatever I do because that's the one commonality in there of like, this is this is my audience of people who are just generally interested in the stuff I'm doing. Um, yeah, it's a it's a thing to keep chewing on. Yep. Yeah, I don't have good uh, answer either. But yeah, if you switch around between multiple things, then you know, the Twitter or YouTube is not the best platform. I mean, the best platform is probably something like not even a blog, but like a website with content that doesn't have dates yeah. on it because then it doesn't matter how long it's been since you posted. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah, and then SEO seems to reward you just like how popular is your blog and... Yeah. Yeah. And then if so, people are searching for stuff, they can they can find that, whatever that content is. Yeah. I don't know who came up with this term, but Joel Hooks uh, calls it digital gardening. Yeah. Is, yeah, that's more like you, you have this content and you sort of prune it and shape it and stuff. And there's no dates because like... Uh, it's just content, right? But you are constantly, I mean, it doesn't matter when you do it constantly for two weeks, right? And then a year later, another two weeks, right? You sort of prune it and shape it and it gets better over time, but um, there's not this expectation that it is updating all the time. Yeah. Um, yeah. Hmm. Maybe that's the answer. Maybe I'd like to be just investing more in my blog because that is the one channel that I feel safe just saying anything that that can have any sort of content on it and I have seen rewards in very different pieces of content on the blog. Um, that 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 does seem to be sort of feeding it on itself of just the more popular any individual thing is on the blog, even if it's not coherent in that it's hitting the same sorts of notes, the more popular the entire blog seems to get. Okay, that feels like a good takeaway. Neat.
I like that. Good stuff. Chris, that's all I got. Then I will see you next week. Goodbye.